uh, in singing that song, I just thought, um, uh, if you're here and you don't know Jesus, like you've never come to a place where you've said, you know what, I'm separated from God and I have no way of getting to him except through Jesus and his sacrificial death on the cross, I want to invite you to trust in him. And he says that everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Everyone. So, uh, and if you're watching online, I just, as I was singing that song, I thought, goodness gracious, if we don't remind ourselves of that precious truth, that's why we sing his name. It's because he alone can save. So, well, good morning. Um, If you've ever played the game of baseball or softball, undoubtedly you have heard the phrase I'm about to say. Keep your eye on the ball, right? Like, is there any more universal phrase in that sport? Now, I did see some great videos this week of little, you know, six, seven, eight-year-olds, whatever, T-ballers, you know, they're kind of doing this, putting their... And dads are going, no, no, it's like, it's a metaphor, it's a... Just focus, keep your eyes on the ball, right? Um, That phrase, certainly we say it uh, around the baseball field, but it applies to just about every sport. Anything where there's catching or throwing or hitting or whatever, like we, we tend to think about catch, see, hit, whatever, focus, keep your eye on the ball, right? But then it even goes beyond that. We, we just use that. That's one of our favorite idioms uh, for focus. And we say it again and again because isn't it so easy to lose focus, to get distracted, to get disoriented from what we're supposed to be doing? And, and it happens in the worst possible moments, like in those critical time-sensitive, like you got to get the job done right then, and that's when you need to keep your eye on the ball, right? So we say that, and we believe it. When we come to biblical eschatology, which is just, that's when the Bible is talking about the end times. When we get to those passages, there's a whole lot of information. We're going to get a whole lot of information today, but I want you to hear this message from all of our, quote, coaches in the Bible, when they're talking about the end times, here's what they're saying. Keep your eye on the ball. Don't get distracted. Don't get off base. Don't don't begin to shift your attention to things that you can't possibly know. Instead, focus your attention on the things that you can know and the things that you should apply to the here and now. I think that's the big message anytime we come to a passage like we're coming to today. That's the deal. Keep your eye on the ball. I'm going to talk about what that is in just a minute, but let's see how Paul starts here with this church in Thessalonica. He says, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our being gathered together to him. That's eschatological language. He says, we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us, to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. So here's what's happened as you've been following along. If you've been here, we're in 
the book of 2 Thessalonians. We covered 1 Thessalonians. And Paul had taught them a lot of things. But one of the things he taught them was about the end times. When Jesus would actually return for his people and make all things new. Now, apparently, there was some non-apostolic, so that like Paul's an apostle, right? So this is non-apostolic teaching that was suggesting the day of the Lord had already come. It's, it's like somehow somebody came in there and said, I know you guys think this is down the road, but it already happened. Sorry, bummer for you. Paul mentions three sources of deception there. One, he mentions a spirit, he mentions a spoken word, and he mentions a counterfeit letter. It could be any of those. The spirit might be like a spontaneous word of prophecy. That was common in the worship gatherings of that early church. A spoken word would have been just oral teaching. Somebody stands up and they deliver a message. It could have been a counterfeit letter. Some would write letters of teaching to the church, and then they would put someone's name on it, like Paul, thinking that would lend their letter some authority, and then they would circulate that. So Paul is saying, it could be any of those. The most important thing is, it contradicts what I've already taught you about the day of the Lord. Someone's saying that it has come, And yet, I think I told you, and based on everything that I told you, you would know it hasn't come. So we have a contradictory message here. And really what that surfaces is the contradiction between apostolic teaching. That would be teaching that has the authority of God's intended leaders, the disciples. Or worldly speculation. It's just somebody's opinion somewhere. Maybe they're really smart. Maybe they're very articulate. Maybe they're very charismatic. But what they're saying is in contradiction to apostolic teaching. And the the big problem is both can't be true. So that forces all of us to have to make a decision. Now, um, this claim that the day of the Lord had come was bringing some real disorientation to this church in Thessalonica. Again, they were doing a lot well. This is a model church. But there are some, we're told, that were shaken in mind or alarmed. And those descriptions are like shaken in mind would be disturbed or unsettled. The the picture is that of an earthquake. Like they are shaking in their very foundations of belief. That's shaken in mind. Or alarmed, that would be startled or frightened or troubled. So you can just see that they heard this information, probably knew that it was different than what they had heard before from Paul, and now they're in a dilemma. And rather than holding on to the truth of what Paul told them, they literally were shaken out of their minds. And... uh, frightened beyond description. Uh, It's a loss of composure. So I would say, if that did happen to some there, if it were to happen to us today, I think it's because we didn't keep our eye on the ball. We, We got taken off into some other directions that we weren't intended to go. So when I say that, what do I mean by the ball. like That would be that thing that we're supposed to stay focused on 
regardless of circumstances, so that we end up getting the job done that God wants done. So I've outlined that in, uh, in this graphic that you'll see on the screen there. It's three things, and they're all great, okay? The first thing is, and th- this, is, this is 101, this is basic. The first one is the great commandment, right? No matter what's happening, no matter what your circumstances are like or the context of history, we're always supposed to love God and love our neighbor. No doubt, that is absolutely the ball. But it's not just that, it's the great commission. That's Jesus' command to go into all the world and make disciples. We are supposed to be disciple makers. Once again, that's not a conditional command. That's not like if everything's going well and it's easy and there's no opposition. It's just this is what you do all of the time until Jesus comes back. That's the ball. Great commandment, great commission. And then the great strategy Paul tells his disciple, Timothy, the things that you have heard from me. So there's some content here. I want you to internalize that, apply that to your life, and then I want you to turn around and pass that along to someone else, and not just anybody else, but I want you to find people who are faithful, who will take that information, internalize it, apply it to their life, and then turn around and do the same thing with somebody else. He says, the things you have heard from me entrust to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. That's the ball. It's the great commandment. It's the great commission. And it's the great strategy. And that is what we're supposed to be about until Jesus comes back. And if we get distracted... If we begin to focus our attention other places on things that we actually can't truly know with certainty then we will end up dropping the ball and not following through on what God intended. Now, practically speaking, what what does it look like to keep our eye on the ball in everyday life? Like these are these big grand banners throughout all of Scripture to help us stay on course. But what does it look like day to day? This may surprise you. It's, It's not like ultra spiritual Listen to what Paul says, 1 Thessalonians 4.11. Aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. Now, I didn't see anything in there about reading your Bible and praying and doing all that stuff, all of which is important, right? But he's saying, how do you live in a world that is broken, where there's persecution and hardship and suffering, and you've been given the assignment to fulfill the Great Commission. I might have thought that you go down to the busiest intersection in town, you get your box, you hop on top with a megaphone, and you yell at people that Jesus is coming. And maybe that is your work, but right here Paul's saying, I want you to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands. Like there's something about work that's important. Let's keep moving. 2 Thessalonians 2.15, he says, Stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us. So Paul was delivering content to that early church, things that they should believe, the very things that we were singing about just a moment ago. They are to hold fast to those things. 
regardless of what's happening in the world around them. And then 2 Thessalonians 3, he comes back to the subject of work. He says, do your work quietly and earn your own living. Now, once again, I'm like, like that's, a, that's a Bible verse? Um, like We're supposed to go get a job? No, here's what was happening. They heard this distressing news that the day of the Lord had come. So they gravitated to a fatalistic attitude that's just like, well... I guess it doesn't really matter. I'm going to quit my job and I'm going to go sip pina coladas or something and I'm going to wait for Jesus to come back. But while I'm doing that, I'm going to ask the church to take care of me. That's what was happening. And Paul says, hey, listen, I'm not telling you when Jesus is coming back. I'm just telling you that he is. And until he does, get to work. Do your job. Be out in the world, but not of the world. You're supposed to be salt and light. Remember the ball? Love your God. Love your neighbor. Make disciples. Pass along your faith to others. That's what you're supposed to be about, not a life of leisure and comfort until Jesus comes back. So he is redirecting them to essentially get back in the game. Uh, There's another great word, I think, that describes this perspective or this posture about end times, and that is readiness. The primary application of any end times-related teaching is readiness. That's why the author is writing that, is so you'll be ready. But there's two expressions of that. D.A. Carson lists these. The first is, be ready for the return of Christ at any time. See, there is an imminence about Christ's return that it really could happen anytime, and we don't know when that time is. So we're supposed to be ready all the time. That's one of the expressions. But the second one is be ready to wait for the return of Christ for a long time. Now, I'm not telling you something you don't know, but Jesus hasn't come back yet for 2,000 years. So it's been a while. But that's totally okay because he never said when, he just said that he would. And so all of us are supposed to be in this posture of readiness where we say, you know what, if he comes in the next 10 minutes, I'm ready. And if he comes after I die, I'm ready. Because I've kept my eye on the ball as long as I had breath. And God will use that even after I'm gone to accomplish his good work until he returns. So we're supposed to hold this posture of readiness despite all that we don't know about the future. And with that in mind, here's what we do know. Paul actually does give us some helpful information about the day of the Lord. Look at verse 3. Let no one deceive you in any way, for that day, the day of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction, who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship, so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Do you not remember that when I was with you, I told you these things? So this isn't new information. 
This is stuff that Paul actually shared with them during his few weeks that he had with them in Thessalonica. I think overall, one thing Paul is saying here is that the day of the Lord is going to be hard to miss. You may not know exactly when it will arrive, but you'll know when it's here. Make no mistake, it will be obvious to everybody that it's happening. And there is that tension of the imminent return of Christ, it can happen anytime, and the delay. But then he adds in here, there's some things that will need to happen before the return of Christ. He mentions a rebellion. And then he mentions a man of lawlessness that will be revealed. And then he says this man of lawlessness will take his seat in the temple of God and proclaim himself to be God. So all of those things, according to to Paul, are going to happen prior to this phrase that we heard earlier called the day of the Lord, the return of Christ and the gathering of his people. Now, he doesn't say when or how long after uh, the man of lawlessness and the rebellion happens that the day of the Lord will come. Once again, there's no timing there. It just says, here's the order of things, just so you know. Now, does that have any effect at all in terms of how we're supposed to live? No. Keep your eye on the ball. Just keep doing what God called you to do. Fulfill your assignment. But it's just good to know that this is the way things are going to play out. Now, just quickly, the rebellion, that's going to be catastrophic, global in scope. And we've seen some things throughout history that were pretty big. And don't you think that some people that were in the midst of that, perhaps a world war, wondered? I wonder if this is the time. It wasn't. But it's okay because nothing changed for God's people. Their assignment was still the same. And they were just called to trust in him along the way. I mentioned this isn't new information for the Thessalonians. Paul taught them about this. But it's interesting, his language echoes teaching that Jesus did with his disciples. Just write down Matthew 24. This is uh, commonly called the Olivet Discourse. It's verses 3 through 31. I'm not going to read through the whole passage, but I want to read the first verse and then make some highlights to show the parallels between Jesus' teaching and Paul's teaching. It says in verse 3, As he sat on the Mount of Olives, that's Jesus, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be, and what will be the sign of your coming and the end of the age? Now, he had been talking about the destruction of the temple. That's the these things they're asking about. But then they also ask about his return, the uh, end of the age. And Jesus speaks to both. It's important to keep in context which one he's talking about throughout that discourse. But let me make some highlights that show us that Jesus was saying things that Paul must have remembered and passed along. In verse 4, Jesus said, See that no one leads you astray. In verse 6, he says, See that you are not alarmed. Verse 12, lawlessness will be increased. Verse 12 again, the love of many will grow cold. 
Five times he uses the phrase, the coming of the Son of Man, which would be the coming of the Lord. And then he speaks of gathering in verse 31. The angels will gather the elect from the four winds. So Paul is just reiterating what Jesus had taught his disciples. So this becomes foundational for how the church is to think about the end times. I'm going to say it again. That understanding doesn't change anything about what the church is called to do until that day arrives. The church is called to keep their eye on the ball. These details really act as signposts for the church. It's like we'll know when it's happening. And it'll honestly, I think, be very reassuring to see that the plan of God, which he showed us in part prior to, is being fulfilled. So, and this is point three in your outline, it's all under control. We don't have to wonder. We don't have to worry. God has got it all under control. And specifically, you can just write this in your outline, evil, which is a part of the plan, is on a leash. It's not just kind of doing whatever it wants to do. It's doing exactly what God intends for it to do. Look at verse 6. Paul says, you know what is restraining him, that is the man of lawlessness we just read about, You know what is restraining him now so that he may be revealed in his time. Now, that's not his time like when he wants to show up. It's his time when God has appointed him to show up. Verse 7, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains it will do so until he is out of the way. And then the lawless one will be revealed whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So Paul is saying there is this man of lawlessness that is going to show up prior to the day of the Lord, the return of Christ and the gathering of the saints. And he is currently being restrained by something or someone. We're not told who that is, but apparently they knew who that was. He tells them, you you know what it is, you know who it is. There is a lot of speculation about the answer to that question, and there's no reason at all to be dogmatic. I do want to mention, because this was just fascinating to me this week, you might think like the Uh, The church could be the restrainer, or the Holy Spirit could be the restrainer, could be the Lord. I think there's reasons why all of those don't make sense, especially in light of what happens later. The most interesting and compelling suggestion I read was the archangel Michael. Now, that may surprise you, but look at Daniel 10 and 12. There is this whole spiritual reality that we don't see day in and day out, but it is happening. There is a war going on between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of the beloved son. And Michael is a key figure in that reality. And if you read again in Daniel, you see that he plays very significant roles in terms of holding back evil for God's purposes. And so it seems 
perfectly understandable that he could be the one who is currently restraining evil and will be taken out of the way so that the rebellion and the man of lawlessness can do what they uh, plan to do. Be encouraged. I love this. Paul, it's like if you hear nothing else, hear this. The Lord's coming back, and when he does... He will kill the man of lawlessness with a word. It says literally with a breath, (laughs) the breath of his mouth. So God is in complete control. Everything is unfolding as he intends. It can certainly be confusing, intimidating, concerning for us. It's like standing at the plate and the pitcher's about to throw a curveball at you. And what does the coach say? Don't worry about the crowds. Don't worry about who's on base. Don't worry about all that other stuff. Just keep your eye on the ball. Hit the ball and let everything else take care of itself. God's in control. Now, to help us kind of put all of this together, I put together a slide that's like an infographic, taking these pieces and just helping us orient ourselves to what Paul is teaching here. That middle line, that's just history. That's just the line of history playing its way out. We're learning here that there is a mystery of lawlessness, which has been ongoing throughout all of history, probably since the fall of the garden, right? And then out of that, there's going to be a lawless one, a man of lawlessness that will emerge. But he's not going to show up until the restrainer at the top of the slide is taken out of the way. Once again, if that's Michael, the Lord's going to say, your assignment here is done. Step aside. Man of lawlessness shows up, and then he begins to do what he's going to do in the midst of that great rebellion. That will carry on until the Lord returns. And at that point, he's going to gather his people and bring to this world, some finality, and then make all things new. I I realize that may seem simplistic to some of you, but that's the information that we're given. I think that's what we need to know in order to just say, okay, keep up with my assignment. Keep on doing what God has called me to do. Now, I threw the word delusion in there, and you may have noticed that hasn't shown up in the text yet. It's actually in the last section of our passage, and that is going to be a, a kind of a pervasive condition in the world once the restrainer is taken out of the way. And what Paul is going to describe next is really a warning of sorts for any who would play fast and loose with the truth. If you're going to do that, you should prepare yourself for great deception, a delusion, where you will actually not come to your senses and see all that's happening and go, wow, I want to welcome the the visitation of God. What you're going to do is you're going to dig your heels in further. God's going to just let you have what you want, and that is to be separated from him. Read with me. Picking up in verse 9, the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan with all power and false signs and wonders. And guys, listen, this is not a fairy tale. 
This wasn't just made up a couple hundred years ago. This is God's instructions to his people so that they won't be caught off guard. The lawless one is by the activity of Satan and all power, false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing. Because they, catch this, refused to love the truth and so be saved. They refuse the truth so they can't be saved. Therefore, God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false. They already do, and it just reinforces that. Verse 12, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth and had pleasure in unrighteousness. Now, we're going to talk a little bit about what Paul's doing here, but on the flip side to this, I think he would say, listen, if you don't want to be deceived, if you don't want to be swept away by a delusion, then treasure the truth. Now, when I say the truth, what am I talking about? What is it? Well, certainly it's content, right? The gospel is truth. This this Bible, this is truth. But I think it might be more than that. Think think about when you hear the word truth, who do you think of? Jesus said, I'm quoting him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. That was how he described himself. And if you start to read this passage in terms of those who love the truth or refuse the truth, they're not just refusing content. They're refusing, they're rejecting a person, the one who can save them. John 8, 31 and 32 says, if you abide in my word, this is Jesus again, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Free from what? Free from sin? Free from the consequences of sin? Free from deception? Free from becoming shaken in mind or alarmed when the world is losing its mind? I think that could be a part of the freedom that Jesus wants to give his people while they are waiting and while they are being about the things that he's called them to do. I I, I tried to imagine... there what this deception might look like. Certainly there are supernatural, there's supernatural activity here, and don't dismiss that. Um, the coming of the lawless one will mimic the projected coming of Christ, so there probably will be some things that we wouldn't be able to explain, but it's evidence of the power that Satan has. Again, very limited, but uh, a counterfeit of the power that God has, and it would have to be believable or no one would be deceived, right? It would also have to play to the natural but fallen uh, affections of humanity. So this whole movement, this mystery of lawlessness will draw people in and they will believe probably on the front end that this is probably a good thing. Now, I want to give a quick illustration. I'm not trying to be unkind. I'm just saying what we're talking about here, the stakes are high. If you were here last week, 
right? Benji talked about heaven and hell, eternity. So we're just not talking about clubs and associations and tribes and that kind of thing. We're talking about eternity, okay? So what would a deception like this be like if it were to happen? I think there's evidence of that. I know there are world religions. They teach a variety of things that they call truth. And wherever that truth contradicts the truth of the Bible, we would say what? It's false. Like They can't both be true. It's not just like, well, whatever your truth is, that's cool. No, it's like there's truth and then there's everything else. So, in the 1800s, a new religion was born called Mormonism. They call themselves the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. The reason they call themselves that is because they believe themselves to be the true church. They actually believe that all of us are deceived and that this book is flawed, that it's not true. There may be some true parts of it, but that this isn't truth. And so they have an apostle, a prophet, Joseph Smith. They call him the prophet of the restoration. They literally believe the creeds that we just sang about, they believe that's all false. And that the church has been apostate for almost 2,000 years. And they were set apart by God to restore the true church. Okay? So that's what they believe. I'm not making that up. And again, I'm not trying to be unkind or unfair. I'm just saying those are the claims. Specifically, they believe in a growing and living gospel. Here's what that means. That this isn't finished that God will still speak with the same authority as he did in this book. They have four sources of scripture. The Book of Mormon, which is literally called Another Testament of Jesus Christ. The Pearl of Great Price, the Doctrine and Covenants, and the authorized King James Version. That's the only version that they will use, but they add a caveat that... They only accept those portions of the King James Version that they deem have been translated correctly. So they can dismiss any part of it that doesn't line up with the Book of Mormon, the Pearl of Great Price, and the Doctrine and Covenants. They also believe that there are living prophets today, their president being one of them, that can add Scripture today that he can hear from God, he can get revelation, and it has the same authority that this does. Here's some teaching, specifically from them. God has a body of flesh. God the Father has a body of flesh and bones, a perfected body that will never decay or die, which also means that he once had a body that could decay or die but that he was exalted beyond that and given a body of flesh and bones. All human beings, they say, male and female, are created in the image of God. We would agree with that, right? They go on to say, each is a beloved spirit, son or daughter of heavenly parents. And as such, each has a divine nature and destiny. That means you existed prior to this life. You have heavenly parents 
you have divine origins, and one day you have the potential to be a God yourself. All of God's children, with very few exceptions, who have ever lived will receive some reward, some degree of salvation. Now, does that does that line up for you with what God says? What we heard just last week about a separation between those who have believed and those who haven't? It's universalism. And that's contrary to the gospel. Lastly, they, they say eternal life is equal to exaltation, which is to receive the blessings. This is literally right out of their teaching. To receive the blessings of the highest degree of heaven, God wants his children to have everything he has to become everything he is. Okay, now, I've never read that in my Bible. And so, there's only a few options here. Either they're right and we're wrong. Or we're right and they're wrong. Or we're both wrong. That's what you got. So, very important to figure out, first of all, what truth is, and then to treasure it with everything in your being, to hold fast to that. And then, as we've been saying this entire time, keep your eye on the ball. Love God, love your neighbor. Fulfill the Great Commission. Make disciples and pass along your faith to another who will turn around and do the same. And keep doing that for the rest of your days until Jesus comes back or he takes you home. That's our assignment. You've got some signposts. Let that be a reminder to you that God's in control. It's going to be okay. And let's be faithful to do what he's called us to do. I'm going to give you a minute, Um, lots here, (laughs) lots to think about. Um, Do do you have your eye on the ball? Are you distracted? Have have you been disoriented with circumstances or the the noise of the world? Whatever it is, just, just sit and ask the Holy Spirit, who if you're a believer lives in you, just say, Holy Spirit, Guide me into all truth about me, about you, about your word, about your mission. Just show me what it is and how I need to adjust so that I can be better aligned with what you're doing in our day. All right? Pray about that.